Welcome to Lay of the Brand, a podcast where we sit down with the experts on the latest innovations in marketing, creative, and PR, and the way these disciplines are revolutionizing how the tech industry communicates and sells to the world. I'm your host, Jake Lynn. This time on Lay of the Brand, we're excited to have our first ever CMO roundtable to discuss one problem just about every marketing leader faces, doing more with less. Buyer journeys are becoming more complex. Channels, both online and offline, are exploding, and investing in MarTech is a must. On top of all that, great marketing talent isn't getting any less expensive. Whether you're a billion-dollar public company or a startup on a shoestring budget, you face difficult choices every day about where to spend your limited marketing dollars. To give us some guidance on making the most informed decisions, I'd like to introduce our two esteemed guests who have been on the marketing front lines and bring a variety of perspectives to the table. First off, we have Matt Howard, who brings over 20 years of experience developing high-growth software companies and currently leads corporate marketing as the Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Sonotype. Welcome, Matt. Thanks. Next, I'd like to introduce Stephen McCarney, who has more than two decades of experience in information security marketing, as well as growing and scaling startups in the tech industry. Stephen currently leads marketing strategy as vice president of marketing at Opaque, a combined network and security company. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Now, thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, Stephen, I'd like to start off with you. You've worked with a range of dollars at your disposal, from large billion-dollar companies to small startups. How did you prioritize spending to achieve success for smaller companies trying to get noticed in the cyber market? Yeah, it's a common challenge, right, that most companies have, like you mentioned, uh, irrespective of how large the company actually is. Um, you know, so, and you hit it early on, it's, it, it, you know, it centers around the types of technologies, right, that you actually want to have in place. And so across the board, there are automation, marketing automation tools, right, the, you know, the likes of Marketo and other types of tools that are, you know, extremely helpful uh, to kind of put in place early on, right, to ensure that you, you actually have, you know, the right infrastructure in place, bring the right teams on board, um, and you actually can measure things accordingly. You know, so, so in terms of budget dollars, I mean, you know, I'm accustomed to working very, very lean Right. No matter how big the company actually is. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, dollars wise, uh, investing in people. Right. I mean, that's really what makes or breaks, I think, any company, frankly. Um, and so, um, you know, so in terms of approaches, I mean, there are lots of approaches, whether you're a small kind of lean startup company. And so Opaque is a good example. Right. Where. It was just a concept, right? And so in 2016, it was just an idea. So we had to establish the brand, right? And so it's just kind of being lean and mean on the dollars and putting the dollars where it makes the most sense to establish the, the identity, the messaging, the value propositioning, building out all the tools and infrastructure, putting the systems in place, and then layering in the, in the people. Um, and the same approach, whether it's, it's a large company, uh, if, you're, if you're parachuting into an existing you know, large enterprise, you're really looking left and right and looking at evaluating your, your existing team, right? Reevaluating the, the assets, the people, the systems. And it all goes back to, to the core goals and, and objectives, right? Fueling pipeline, establishing the brand, accelerating the brand and everything like that. So 
Uh, do you ever have to make really hard decisions uh, on where to spend your money? Like, for example, sometimes having to say no to industry tentpole events like like RSA. Um, what were some of the tough decisions you've had to make? Absolutely. And events is a good example. I mean, events can be one of those things that could be a, um, you know, a vacuum that just sucks up all your money, right? And you have to be really strategic and laser focused at the end of the day. So, you know, uh, there's an offensive and a defensive approach in my experience. Uh, so some large industry events, like you mentioned, RSA. If you're a buyer on that show floor, I'm sure, Matt, you can, you know, I'm sure you've seen this as well. You're probably, can, all the messaging is very similar, extremely noisy. So how do you really stand out? Um, so what, where I found more success is instead of the, you know, the large typical industry events, it might be more or less the small intimate gatherings, right? Brokered by a third party trusted advisor, for example, whether it be a media, uh, outlet or some sort of trusted third party that really brings a small intimate gathering together. So you can actually communicate and dive deep, deeply into understanding those prospects, right. And communicating your, your message. So RSA on the defensive side real quickly is sometimes if you're not present there, you may not be perceived as part of the ecosystem, right? So there's a defensive. So it all goes back to what your goal and objective is, but you got to be really careful and smart with your money. Cybersecurity can be a pretty niche audience uh, to market too. Matt, you also have a very unique audience to reach in terms of a more tech-oriented crowd and and open source communities. Um, How's that shaped your marketing strategies and and budget decisions? So, I mean, I think from a marketing perspective and sales perspective, I I like to look at sales and marketing expenses, what, what common line item. And, you know, I like to build relationships tightly with a chief financial officer and look at the business empirically and, um, you know, factor in, you know, core metrics like cost to acquire a customer and the lifetime value of the customer, um, sort of dollar net retention rate. So in a perfect world, if you're in a software business and you have, let's just say, um, really high gross margins and really healthy net margins, and you're able to get out there into a growing market and invest heavily in sales and marketing expense, um, you'd be amazed at how much you can invest to get aggressive into a growing market, provided that the acquisition of those uh, recurring contract dollars um, have a lifetime value that's, let's just say, three times greater than the cost to acquire it. But if you're spending $100,000 in sales and marketing expense to acquire a customer, and that customer uh, gives you a hundred thousand dollar contract, and they're around for three years. That's a three hundred thousand uh, dollar contract value over three years, and a hundred thousand dollar marketing and sales expense. So it might sound like a lot of money, but on a but on P and L basis, it's actually a really good investment. So it it does depend a lot on the uh, where the company is and its its sort of maturity, where it is with respect to its market opportunity, where it is with respect to its year over year growth. Um, and, and when you sit back and you look at certain software businesses, it's astounding to see how much they actually do invest and burn, uh, cash on sales and marketing expense. A really healthy business, different from another business that might be sort of like, let's just say a sub 10 or sub 20% grower. Um, it's a lot harder to make those, those heavy investments. Fortunately for Sonotype, we've been a really high growth business for the last four years. And so I've had the opportunity to invest heavily into sort of a rising tide and have worked very closely with my sales counterpart and my chief financial officer to put those dollars to work. 
um, you know, in a way that we're just very carefully calculating um, uh, the metrics. And one of the big ones I always pay attention to is, is this concept of people to program. So if I've got a marketing budget, I'm able to benchmark my allocation of those dollars on how much do I spend on compensating professionals, humans, versus how much am I putting to work in the context of a program or a demand gen. Um, and I know what the bench is for a company our size that's growing about as fast as we are. And so we're able to just make decisions that aren't emotional. They're empirical and they're informed by data and benchmarks. And that just makes the conversation with respect to budgeting um, a lot easier, no yeah. drama, less emotion, <laughs> just the facts. Right, right. <clears throat> and you guys had a very successful recent acquisition by uh, by Vista. Um, would you say that's going to, uh, how, how would you say that's going to alter your, your marketing approach going forward? You know, I think Vista has a, a reputation of being a world-class um, partner to, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and management teams who are growing healthy software companies and take them to the next scale. And Vista has a certain approach in doing that, which is, um, you know, very process-oriented, very metrics-driven, very data-centric. And um, the way we've built our business, um, I, I think, uh, positioned us well for the conversations that we had with Vista because we see the world through a very similar lens. Um, you know, we're just excited to be able to continue the growth journey that we're on with a partner of Vista scale puts us into a position to not only continue to invest aggressively into the rising tide that we see out there, um, but but gives us an opportunity to think, I think, more broadly with respect to inorganic growth and M&A. There's just a lot of scale that Vista brings to the table, and we're excited to partner with those guys and continue to grow the business. Yeah, that's great. Um, and s- s- Sticking with uh, with um, real life experiences, Stephen, you've helped to grow and scale some companies like Unisys, um, which is pretty much a household name in security and tech. Uh, what were some of the lessons learned there, and what investments and strategies do you think paid off the most to get the company to where it is today? Sure. So yeah, that that goes back a few years, but uh, you know, Unisys at the time. So they have a great product called Stealth. So it's a great technology, and so. Um, you know, really kind of commercializing that to really bring it to market, connecting the dots of the value that that offering brings to, you know, what that, what the market actually needs. Right. And so there are a lot of considerations that, um, that, that, that play into that. It wasn't just a messaging and positioning, um, exercise. It was kind of dropping in there to really understand holistically, like what is the market consuming and how are they consuming it? Right. And it's not just a matter of a product sale. It's tied into things like services, Right. And it's a more holistic viewpoint, if you will. Um, and so, like you mentioned, a company like Unisys has great resources, right? A great creative team um, and access to, um, you know, a lot of professionals across the globe. Uh, so I had the privilege of working with it with, you know, a great team. Um, and so other things were kind of really tightening up this, the to, to Matt's point, you know, like those metrics, like really kind of beginning with what are we looking to achieve? Like how are we going to crack, crack this nut? We can't be everything to everybody, right? So honing it in, right? And really kind of leaning on on the right people and the right tools to really make small successes. And then you breathe this, you use those small successes to accelerate growth, right? And so that's really kind of been a successful approach at Unisys, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to that point, I mean, I would just uh, offer a comment about um, – a lot of times I think people tend to get myopically focused on marketing budgets and they lose sight of the fact that there's a sales budget. Um, and, and, and I think it's healthy to really look at them in a single 
uh, as a single budget. And the reason is because the most important metric, in my view, is sales efficiency. And, and that, that's a simple way to reflect on how much money does the business spend, regardless of whether it's coming from a sales or a marketing expense budget, how much business, how much money does the business spend to acquire a new dollar of recurring contract value? And, and, and that, there's new and how much money does a business spend to acquire a, an expansion dollar, an existing customer buying more um, versus how much money does the business spend to renew a customer? And, and acquiring a new dollar of contract value is very expensive, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. Expanding is less expensive and renewal is the most efficient. So you've got to look at the type of revenue growth you're trying to achieve. And if you're playing a net new a- a- acquisition game, you better be prepared to invest heavily into that because it's expensive. Great. I want to shift gears here a little now and touch on something that's being talked about quite a bit in the industry, and that's marketing technology. Uh, MarTech is the new hot buzzword in today's landscape, but what do you think is really worth investing in and, and what's overhyped? Uh, Stephen, how do you differentiate through MarTech and the cyber industry, or does it just come down to personal preference? Yeah, and I, I think it really depends on what you're looking at. So, um, so, for example, you have the marketing automation tools and, and, and the big guys, right? Like the Marketos, the Hub, HubSpots, and you know, those types of tools are extremely powerful and helpful. Um, you have other tools and say, social media management and things like that. And so we use a small tool called Agora Pulse as an example. But um, it really depends on how those tools are going to be integrating into your big picture, right? To kind of create that that dashboard view, right? So you can actually metric everything. Um, and so at Opaque, you know, we kind of established, you know, enterprise grade tools. Initially we have you know, Salesforce and Marketo. We use bright talk for webcast platform and we're a channel model, a channel sales model. So it's important for webcast, for example. So it's tied into our website. Uh, so, so we have everything fully integrated. Um, and so the types of tools, however, again, I think does depend on personal preference at the end of the day, how you like to schedule certain things out and what kind of interfaces you're accustomed to working with instead of having to learn a new interface. Um, But in terms of the features and whatnot, I mean, there are a lot of great tools out there. So I think at some point you just have to kind of dial it into your personal preferences. Got it. So there's no one perfect solution for all. I wish there was one silver bullet, but unfortunately it's a cobbling together still of kind of best of breed capabilities and features that really works for, for what you're looking to achieve. And, and certainly some, some trial and error Absolutely. as well. Yes. Right? Uh-huh. Uh, and Matt, how much time, money, and energy do you need to invest when it comes to attribution? What MarTech investments have been most effective uh, for your needs? Um, so first thing I would say is I, I think there's too many tools out there. Um, <laughs> and I think if you talk to a typical CISO about the number of cyber vendors that are running at him or her, uh, it's it's daunting. The number of vendors trying to get access to the CISO with respect to that budget is enormous. And the same is true for me as a chief marketing officer. The number of vendors in the MarTech game trying to get access to my budget is enormous. Right. Uh, I think there's too many tools. I think tools gone wild is a real problem. Um, I speak for myself. I mean, I put a challenge out to my team. I want less than 20 tools in my MarTech stack. And I'm like, 20 is too many. And they're like, you're crazy. You know, it should, I'm like, we should start with 10. We should have 10 core tools in our stack. And they say, you know, we can't do it. We, we just, we just have too many functional requirements in the business that, that require certain tool functions to, to, so, so we kind of settled on 20 as being an optimal number of tools that allows us to uh, run our business effectively in scale. 
um, if we're not careful, we could be in that we could, we could have 40 or 50. And I know a lot of folks that do. And it's just like, um, I, I think it's something you got to constantly monitor and manage. And I personally believe that less is more in the, from a tools perspective, where you're investing in making sure from a people and process perspective, you're getting value from the tools. Um, and in our case, uh, our stack is a HubSpot uh, integrated tightly to Salesforce. And then it's sort of wrapped with demand base, which is a account-based marketing and sort of sentiment analysis and, and um, um, ad platform. Um, ultimately, though, for, for us, uh, we uh, believe that the most important thing we can do with our tools is put information in the hands of our salespeople that allows them to make better decisions with respect to how they want to spend their time uh, on their tier one accounts on their prospect deck activity and their investments. And this comes back to if we're spending money from a sales expense perspective, we should be making those investments with as much information, empirical information as possible. So where does that data come from? Um, in our case, we certainly possess first party data that helps us make those decisions, meaning we have technographic information about certain customers because we have an open source project. But a lot of it's third party data that we get from something like demand base, or we get it from HubSpot or web analytics or lots of other places, but grabbing all of that third-party data, mashing it together with first-party data and creating signal-to-noise value for the salesperson. So when the salesperson comes in, sits down at their desk on Monday morning, they can look inside of Salesforce, which is the tool that they live in, and they can see the information at their disposal, which allows them to make better decisions with respect to how they spend their time, how they make their quota. So it sounds like just the, the fidelity, the integrity of third-party data is, is crucial. I mean, you really have I don't to- think the – yeah, sure. I mean, you always want to find a vendor that can provide you better data. And I, I think a lot of people talk about having better data. I'm not sure that I believe any of that. Um, I think at the end of the day, you have to try something, see what works, and you have to be prepared for the fact that the data is not going to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect. But um, there's enough signal in the noise when you have the systems properly set up and integrated that you know it does work and it does provide value and the salespeople make better decisions and everybody's happy. Right. Well, as as important as these technologies are, uh, it sounds like it's the people that truly make the difference, right? Um, so let's talk about marketing talent. As I'm sure you both have seen in your experience, uh, great marketing talent can be hard to come by and hard to keep and, and quite expensive. Uh, Stephen, with your experience in startups, let's start with you. Uh, if you're just starting out, who do you need to hire? Exactly. So having lived this most recently, right? So we formed the company in 2016 and it was a concept at the time, um, you know, so really beginning with, with the infrastructure, right? So establishing the brand and, and the presence. So, you know, personally for me, it was kind of key to have a marketing operations person, right? That was, you know, establishing, helping to establish that foundation, right? Assessing all the tools and things like that. And I agree with Matt that it's overwhelming looking at all the tools out there, right? So you got to be very deliberate and careful um, and really evaluating what that value actually is. And in my case, at the same time too, is our sales force. And I also agree it's, it's a holistic uh, approach. Um, so there's a lot of enablement, right? So before we talk about go-to-market activities and events and things like that and messaging, like how are the sales, how's the sales force really going to ingest and understand that message to be able to, because they're advocates of the brand every day or every interaction. So, um, so beyond marketing operations, um, you, you know, what I had found as I was outsourcing things like design and, and whatnot, and I'm very careful with personnel decisions. I never, cause that's a life altering decision for anyone's career. 
So I want to make sure that we have an absolute need for that person on a full-time basis, possibly overflowing with need. Um, so I, my next kind of higher on was a content czar, essentially, right? Yeah. We need to kind of churn out the content once we have this established messaging. Layering in with that is uh, design, right? And so in-house, especially for a startup, we need that agility and flexibility, move on a dime. You couldn't afford to fit into someone else's pile. Okay, I'm working on six other clients right now, right? I can get to you back to you in about three days, right? No, I'm be looking work. over the shoulder. We're, we're working real time, yeah. right? Um, and then layering in things too, when we pivoted from a direct sales model to a channel model, hiring channel marketing managers really to help execute with our partners, all the marketing programs and campaigns, measure accordingly. So it's a well-oiled machine, small and mighty. Um, but if you're, again, it goes back to your, your strategy. If you're really smart and deliberate, right. Um, you know, can't be everything to, to, to everybody. Right. So anyway, that's, that's great. But it sounds, my takeaway from what you just said, it sounds like you really have to have a lot of trust from the sales folks in, in the marketing person. I mean, it has to just be a, you know, either someone, someone that they've utilized in the past or, or someone that they just feel very comfortable that it fits like a glove. It is. I mean, you always get the sales is going to point to marketing, marketing is going to point to sales. And at the same time, it's how do you create that seamless view from lead development conversion all the way through? And probably I'm sure like Matt does, like our dashboards are cradle to grave. Yep. It's top of funnel all the way through opportunity close, win loss and win loss analysis as well, right? That we then feed that, that education, what, what, what can we learn from that into our marketing assets and content? It's a, it's a whole cycle. Right. Yeah. Matt, what are your thoughts on how you go about building the right marketing team? Yeah, it comes back to like what I talked about earlier, sort of just the financial calculus. So if we, if we're, if we have a, let's just make this up $20 million software business and we're trying to grow this year to $30 million, we'd want to do $10 million new. Uh, what we want to basically look at is how much of that, uh, goal, uh, how much do we need to invest from a sales perspective? How much do we need to invest from a marketing perspective? And what is the sales efficiency objective of the business supported by the board? And so, you know, you take those numbers, we basically sort of have the calculus. Um, the amount of budget that I then have available is, 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 you know, it's clear, it's finite, but it is, you know, uh, up to me to then decide how much do I put on people versus how much do I put into programs. That's really, um, uh, for me, driven by a benchmark. I pay very close attention to what my peers, best in class peers are doing. So if they're spending 55 or 60% of their budget on programs and 40, 45% of their budget on compensating humans, I'm going to spend 40 or 45% on compensating humans. And when my team comes to me and say, I need another body to do X, I'm going to say, no, you don't because our peers don't. Right. Because right. we can't afford to spend outside the best in class benchmark. So we can do this job well with the resources we have. And we should really challenge ourselves to put 60% of our budget to work in a program sense and 40% to work in a people sense. So, so just making sure that we're having conversations informed by benchmarks helps to sort of balance the how many, how much money do we really have to go hire people? And then, then you get into a really interesting conversation about, well, who do we need to hire? Um, and, you know, I, Vista has a, a very interesting concept called a, a, a HIPL. Uh, it's a high potential, low experience, low earner. And these are young, hungry people that are sort of uh, arguably a, maybe a little bit less experienced, uh, have native uh, 
uh, aptitude for uh, the job. They have a, to the extent that you can measure this, sort of the intangible, which is grit and just sort of want to show up, want to work, want to grow, want to learn. And and those uh, folks, you know, uh, sometimes you can hire two hipples for one uh, more experienced person. And at the end of the day, you just have to make really careful decisions about, um, you know, putting those people dollars to work and finding uh, where you can get better efficiency and scale by going with the hipple. Uh, kind of candidate versus the more experienced candidate, and it's, it's a trick. But yeah. I'm not sure there's a uh, a science there, but but there's definitely an art there, and we try and practice that. And definitely, uh, you know, best practices. It doesn't sound like you have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, that they're you're trying to align yourself with what what other large successful companies do. Mm-hmm. Um, well, good. I think I'd, I'd like to round up the conversation with the biggest do's and don'ts when it comes to getting your marketing budget together. Um, Matt, go ahead and kick us off. What would be some of your biggest tips uh, on do's and don'ts for our listeners? Um, I would say from a, a, the, the do's perspective, be empirical and be data-driven, be benchmark-driven. Don't be emotional. Um, from a do's perspective, I would say understand the financial metrics that drive the corporate P&L. Make very close friends with the CFO and understand the financials of the business so that you're making decisions um, in a financial context, not in a silo, which is historically kind of a marketing silo. Um, those would be my biggest. Okay, great. And Steven? Yeah, I'm on the, on the do front, I certainly would take that macro view, right? You, you, in order to effectively sell your marketing program, right, and get the funding for that, right, um, you really need to have a strong business case for that. Um, and, and really kind of look at what's the anticipated return on every single investment, whether it's in people, the process, or the program, right? Um, so it's really taking that time uh, to really assess that and put the numbers together. The numbers have to make sense, right? And it's got to be well-supported and validated before you actually even have those conversations. Um, um, on the don't side, it probably aligns with maybe what Matt said about being emotional, mm-hmm. right? It's... Uh, Sometimes, you know, in my experience, I've seen some people get pretty excited about just getting some activity done, right? And they can point to things that are getting done, but what value is that really adding? What is that? What's the return that we're actually seeing from that? So don't be too careful because you're, you're going to wind up paying much more in the longer term just by being busy today if you took a half step back and really assessed everything properly, right? And mm-hmm. so I think that's a common thing that I see, I've seen many, many times. So basically, just don't don't uh, fall into the trap of chasing your competition, but keep your eye on the ball and your own your own business model. Well, sometimes it does require chasing competition. Sometimes they can actually create great waves, right, and, and rise that tide that you can actually ride. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so there are pros and cons to both, but like you said, don't get distracted. I think is is kind of a a big recommendation there. Okay, great. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, Lessons on doing more with less from the experts who have been there on the marketing front lines. Uh, Once again, I'd like to extend a huge thank you to our guests for today's CMO Roundtable. Uh, Thank you for taking the time to share your insights with us, Stephen and Matt. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Sure. You've been listening to Lay of the Brand, brought to you by Merit Group, a strategic communications firm that blends the best of PR, digital marketing, and creative to help our clients tell their stories. Lay of the Brand's executive producer is Melissa Chadwick. Francesca Alatrache is producer and showrunner. And our assistant producers are Brooke McClary and Jessica Chapow. Graphic design by Haley Bumgardner with technical support from Keith Kiska. 
Do you have a suggestion or you want to share feedback with Lay of the Brand? We'd love to hear from you. Just subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your preferred listening platform and leave us a review. Spread the word and tell your friends to like us as well. To learn more about Merit Group, check out layofthebrand.com. Merit Group.